0: Hey, it's your pal Mike Shay from Sly Flourish, and this is the Lazy D&D Talk Show. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you would like to help support Sly Flourish, you can do so by going to patreon.com slyflourish and signing up. And I want to thank everybody that has done so. Yesterday, I had a free day, and I said to myself that the only thing I want to do on that day is uh, take the print copy of Ravenloft, Take the paper copy of Ravenloft, the, the, the hardback version of Ravenloft, which I picked up at my friendly local game shop. So I picked this up Friday and I just wanted to really dive in. Now I am not a great reader. Uh, my friend Sam Dillon is a great reader. So if you want like a really in-depth, word-by-word look at this book, there are probably better people to get it from. But I do have thoughts about it. And I thought I would share those thoughts and put them here and we can all share our thoughts of this book together. I think it's an outstanding book and I highly recommend it. I'll start off with that. It is a really, really good book. Why do I recommend it? So I recommend it for a few reasons. One is it is a book full of stuff to fire up your imagination, which is, I think, a very important thing in this day and age. It's so easy for us to get caught into like mechanics and gameplay and stuff like that. It's packed with flavorful information that really gives you ideas. I find it to be directly applicable and directly usable. I'm running a Rime of the frost maiden game right now, and there are parts of the book that I can grab and throw right into my game. I can do it today. And I, I think that makes it very, very useful. On top of just being really flavorful, uh, it also has just a lot of useful stuff that I can throw into my game right away. Uh, another reason the monster design is really good. There's a good there's a good pile of monsters in here. It is not a monster book like *Mordenkainen's* or *Volo's* Guide, but it's kind of close. It's sort of like they extended, the fluffy chapters of a Kanan or *Volo's* Guide, and shrunk the monstery part of it. And I may be alone in this, but I'm I'm okay with not a lot of stat blocks. Like, I've got a million stat blocks already, right? And so so more monster stat blocks are not necessarily the thing that I want the most. I'd rather have fewer really useful stat blocks and i think there's a lot of really useful stat blocks in this one then lots and lots of stat blocks where i look at them and i'm like yay i gotta fix that and and there's a lot of a lot of that so i like it for those reasons there's probably other reasons i like it and we'll we'll talk about those too but i think for 50 bucks as a Really narrative, flavorful books. Certainly, if you like the horror genre of D and D, if you really dug Curse of Strahd, if your players really dug that kind of game, there's a lot here. But I think you can steal a lot from this book and use in any fantasy RPG. It doesn't. It doesn't feel to me like it has to be a horror-focused game for you to get a lot of value. So today in this in this show, uh, I'm going to kind of dig into the things that I found that that I found most interesting. I'll probably do like a walkthrough of the book. Uh, I did pay for this book myself. I do have a comped copy of Ravenloft from, or of, of Van Richten's guide from D&D Beyond, but I also bought the physical version at my local game shop directly. At first I questioned why the, the I got lost as to the difference between Ravenloft, as they describe it, and the Domains of Dread. And at first I, I I was skeptical and I thought, is this like a marketing thing? Like we want to use the term Ravenloft because it's trademarkable, Domains of Dread is a little harder to trademark and people like Ravenloft because they know they know Castle Ravenloft. They kind of refer to the whole campaign setting if it's a campaign setting as Ravenloft and the domains of dread sit inside of Ravenloft. Which means that when you refer to Ravenloft or the Domains of Dread, I believe you're kind of referring to the same thing, which threw, threw me off a little bit because you have Castle Ravenloft. And what does that mean, right? Why would Strahd's Castle be known as Ravenloft and also an entire world be, or an entire universe be known as Ravenloft as well? That kind of threw me off. But I did, I, I, I had some friends that did some homework for me. And uh, found out that that is in fact how they did it in second edition as well. So at least there's legacy here that that this was done uh, this was done a while ago. So why Ravenloft and the, uh, you know why Ravenloft other domains of dread the same thing? The answer is well it was done that way in the past and we can get past it. But basically something that it, that I had to sort of internalize is when they refer to Ravenloft they are also referring to the domains of dread. They're kind of the same. They're kind of the same thing. In the intro chapters they have a really good chapter that I wish was in the player's handbook uh, in the character creation side of things, which probably will get skipped, and I don't think a lot of players will... I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if a lot of players are going to buy this book or not. It is 20%-ish for players and 80% for DMs, so it seems like if you're spending 50 bucks on this as a player, you either really love D&D or you really love these character options and stuff, but I, I, I felt like it's not a player book, but they don't ever want to like discount players completely. However, there are some really important things in this character creation section that I wish were described overall. And it talks about how to kind of work with your DM to understand the kind of campaign you're running and the kind of questions that you have. You know, there's a, there's a fair bit of discussion in this, in this early section about understanding the boundaries of the game world in game and of the things you should do as a player at the game table. And I think that that's I think that's yet that that's useful, right? There's a lot about like how to make your character fit the world, and I really wish that more of that was in uh, the player's handbook. You know, like how to be a good player, right? Like, there's a little bit of that in here. They, they they certainly touch on like how to be a good player and how to talk to your DM about your limits on what you want in your game and understanding the limits of the other players at your game, right? That's that using safety tools isn't just the DM's job, right? It's the job of everyone at the table to understand what everybody wants, including like what's the DM comfortable with that the player may be comfortable with that the DM is not. So lots of really useful stuff in here that approach it from the point of view of if you are a player sitting at the game, you know, sitting at the table, how can you be a better player? And I wish more it's it's kind of like well that's funny they packed it into a book about ravenloft interesting section uh i did read up on the lineages there there are three lineages the dampier the hexblood and the uh, the reborn and all of them are really cool i really dig them i i immediately went and made a vampire or a dampier character for my for the ravenloft Adventures league game that we'll probably play in sometime and my wife was reading in hexblood and she's like i think it'd be really cool to be like a, a daughter of a hag you know and i was thinking about it. we were talking on the walk today and i was like you know what'd be really cool is a hexblood a daughter of a, a daughter of a hag, who in in like an Eberron setting where the hags are like royalty, right? Where the daughters of Sorakal are like royalty. And and you could be a, a noble Hag. So rather than kind of like hiding the fact that you're a hag from, and your your mother lives in a hut out in the swamps, instead it's like no, I have hag grandmothers and they're royalty and I'm a member of this royal class of hags and I'm on like Rumspringa. You know, my job is I'm I, the reason I'm out adventuring is because I need to learn about the world because I take my before I take my rightful place as a as a royal hag in the in the court. I think that'd be an awesome background for a character, right? And you know, so I so I think there's a lot of cool options here one of the things when i look at all three of these lineages is that you can you can flavor these they're they're heavily flavored so the dampier obviously we're thinking of like a half vampire but you could also like because one of the dampiers is sort of like the cerebral spinal fluid variety this would work as a half mind flare, right that like you what if what if you have the mind flare cenobite in you i don't know if it's called a cenobite, whatever it is the mind parasite thing in you and it doesn't fully work and you don't become a full mind flayer you just become kind of a mind flayer the dampier would be a great lineage to throw on your character to be a half mind flayer right and no one you know and it, it fits perfectly you know that's an option hex blood you know it, yeah like I, I like the idea of hag, hag royalty as a hex blood and uh, another one is and then reborn I was like this is uh, 11 or whatever whatever not 11 but what's the name of the guy in Planescape Torment, right? The main character in Planescape Torment is a reborn, right? That's the class. And I'm sure that they probably had that in mind when they were thinking about it. But I also had characters where like a spirit took them over and reborn would be a cool way. Yeah, nameless one. The nameless one from Planescape Torment is a perfect version of reborn, right? You could be a golem, right? You can be an undead that woke up. I ran a campaign once where all the characters woke up in a, in a charnel pit and the re- and they could have all been different kinds of reborn. So what I love about these three options is that there's a lot of flexibility in all three, right? That they, they did a really good job of instead of building a really narrow lineage, they built three wide linea- lineages that let you expand them in lots of directions, right? You can reflavor each of these into a lot of different paths. And I think, I think, that that is, I think that's really, really cool. So I, I like the lineages a lot. Uh, I took a quick look through the uh, subclass options, the two subclass options, Bard College of Bards, Bard College of Spirits, a little less at the Undead undead Pact Warlock, although I think I picked an Undead Pact Warlock as my, as my build. Nothing jumped out at me as broken. I noticed that a lot of them have a lot of temporary hit point stuff, and boy, something at Wizards of the Coast, there must have been like from on high, Hasbro said, hey, we love what you're doing with D&D, but you need to fire hose in more temporary hit points. Because, oh my God, every class and every build now has like 15 different ways to get temporary hit points. It's kind of driving me bananas. But I'm just still bitter. I'm still real bitter about uh, Twilight Clerics and Twilight Sanctuary. So that's where that's coming from. Yeah, so I think the class stuff is really cool. Again, I'm like, I don't know who's going to buy it, but hey, not my problem. So then we have a couple chapters, the creating domains of dread. And I'll be honest, I I was more excited for this and i was i was kind of let down there's a fair bit so they they talk about creating a dark lord but a lot of it is like well work with the players to kind of come up with things for the dark lord build the dark lord from the backgrounds of the players and the problem is that that's sort of backwards for me i like to have i mean after a session 0 then and different people have different ways to play and and other people are much more successful at running a game where they build the campaign world from the characters. But I I know I'm I'm probably a little bit more of a control freak in that. And I like to have a campaign narrative idea, a general idea before I sit down with the players to generate characters, because I want the characters to fit the idea. I don't really, you know, the idea that the I the the if you if your campaign concept fits the characters, the problem is you got five players with all five different concepts they're all going to be all over the place, right? So they're not built around a theme. And I think it's important to build characters around a theme. So I suppose you could sit down with your players and define it, but the idea of sort of generating dark Lords from the opposite reflections of, of, a of, of a character didn't grab me, didn't grab me that much. Now, maybe I didn't understand this and maybe actually what you're trying to do is, is build a dark Lord in sort of the the reverse of how you would build a character. Right. So it's not really about how the players are building characters, but it says like, ask your players, which of their characters, personality traits and bonds are their favorites and then twist them and exaggerate them. Eh, That's not really for me. Right. That's not really how I want to do it. I was hoping for more generator kind of stuff here. I was hoping for more random tables. And we, we'll get to the random tables in a minute here. But the idea of sort of generating a random... And they talk about it. they like consult the Dungeon Master's Guide. This is your life. And the Xanathar's Guide for additional. So you can generate... And maybe that's the thought. is like the Dungeon Master's Guide already has a lot of ways to generate villains. We don't need more generators in here. But I think some flavorful generators to build Dark Lords in particular would have been a better approach for me. It would have been more useful for me than like, I don't know, you figure it out, which is kind of what I feel like they said. Uh, so they do have things like fatal flaws, you know, and that's not bad uh, that you have it, you know, and, and they kind of tell you the formula for building a dark lord, and I guess that's cool. Um, monstrous transformation. And so I was reading this, and I was like, the monstrous transformations just don't, like, which of these did I dig, right? Most people memories visually repeating reflections around them. I guess... Dark Lord's body disintegrates, leaving animated heart, hand, gory ooze. They were so kind of specific that I was like, I don't know if I'm going to use any of these, right? Or I don't. None of these jumped out as like. And then the last one is they're a monster from the monster manual. You know, that's kind of a big one, right? So I don't know. I I guess they give you ideas. I I wanted more random tables, right? And and I wanted random tables that I don't know were more useful. It's hard. To, I don't know. It's hard for me to really figure out why I didn't dig this, but it's okay because I, I dug stuff, you know, further. Creating the domain, I also found a little vague, right? It was kind of v- very general. Uh, it, it sort of gives you a bunch of questions, which is cool. But again, I want more generator kind of stuff. Give me options, let me roll, inspire me with, with ideas and we'll get there, right? It, it turns out they did that, it's just not here. But this is all sort of the formulas for, for creating it. And it's all good advice it it just it didn't it didn't grab me as stuff that was going to work, you know, that was going to be easy for me to really make a, you know, make a make a, you know. So it so says Amy Dallin and and Taliesin Jaffe made a domain uh, for the D&D Beyond YouTube channel that was crazy good, but I have no idea how close they stuck to the chapter. Well, the thing is the chapter's pretty vague, so you you don't have to go far to to stay close to the chapter, I don't think. You know, hey, pick monsters that fit the theme. No kidding. Good idea, right? What do the misty borders represent? Okay, that's cool. This is one that work you know what kind of adventures are you going to have here okay what are the dark lord connections you know and you have dark lord connections and interactions that's cool you know what's the downfall in least so it's a very general chapter and i feel like i could have used i guess it's it's good advice it's certainly a sort of a different way but having read it i didn't feel particularly like okay i'm ready to go and build one of these things it's like i kind of don't know what i'm i guess i follow the steps and maybe if i built one that would have been different But then we get to the cool part, which is genres of horror. And here is exactly what I wanted, right? I I wonder if they kind of split the writing of this up. I don't know. But now we're talking. So genres of horror, I was like, I don't need a description of body horror versus psychological horror versus whatever. But then I got into it and I'm like, oh, now we're talking, right? Body horror monsters. Okay, here's a bunch of different monsters that represent body horror. Body horror villains, aging king obsessed with creating a new body so he can continue his reign indefinitely, right? These are great. A house that remembers having tenants and will do anything to regain them, right? Torments, yeah, Dark Lord can't control their transformation. So, what we have here are all of the things that the previous chapter told us we need, only it's broken down by all of these different genres. And it's great, right? This is what I wanted. As soon as I saw this, I was like, ah, thank you. This is what I wanted, right? Body horror settings. A world of monuments and houses all made of flesh. That's a little gory. A forest of black pines draped in bodies. That's kind of cool. Slaughterhouse, larger than it appears in the outside, full of victims, mutely awaiting slaughter. These are grim, right? Subterranean tunnels, walls uh, spackled with fossils of mummified organs. So, lots of different stuff here. Adventure sites, cavernous gut of a dead multi eyed behemoth, asylum, abandoned save for vermin, right? Really good. These are all great, right? So uh, um, Brian says uh, these sound like Sly Flare secrets, kind of. These are these are very similar to like the you know the, the the things I'm putting into the DM's Companion, like lots of things to sort of fire up your imagination and give you ideas. That's what I want: fire up my imagination, give me ideas, fuel me, right? And this fuels me. The the previous chapters, you know, I guess they kind of help. It's certainly one way to approach it. I didn't find them as useful as i found this chapter right cosmic horror and so i figured out and there's like 50 different you know campaign options in here when you when you just look at these chapters what makes cosmic horror cosmic right here's all the different monsters that make it cosmic you know villains a mayor of a town who will do anything to make sure the citizens finish their sacred transformation right out of your hp lovecraft head librarian of an ancient sect who seeks secrets hidden within within her peer within her peers right cool stuff right torments dark lord is uh, the dark lord randomly screams their master's words messages uh, etched upon stone and flesh settings i find the settings in particular land possessed by fear of the of the colossi that moves only during the dawn and dusk right A kingdom of undying monarchs who outnumber their frightened subjects great stuff right really you know really good adventure sites small inn in the mountains that smells perpetually of brine a sewage system that predates the city above i love old sewers you want to make a cool city throw some ancient sewer forgotten sewers underneath great stuff so we have dark fantasy you know cosmic horror body horror dark fantasy folk horror you know for lovers of the wicker man wicker man is a fantastic movie by the way the original wicker man ghost stories didn't, and ghost stories are okay. Uh, gothic horror, fantastic stuff. And other, you know, then it's got like other horror genres where it's just giving you the general ideas. And that's fine. But I, boy, I think it's those tables that really, you know, the tables are what really grabbed me. Those were what I found exciting. But all these are pretty good, right? And like, you know, sure, the genre stuff is good. It's, it, it falls more to that sort of advice rather than tools. So I really, I really um, dug that chapter. So then we get into the domains. And and boy, this is the bulk of the book. I don't yeah. So 112 pages of the book are dedicated to the domains of Ravenloft, including the big domains and including other domains. So that's really the bulk of the book. And each of these is kind of its own campaign, its own small campaign world. You could either run with the information you hear, you could either seed a large campaign, right? Get it gives you some ideas and then you build out a much bigger campaign. Or it really fills out a small campaign. You know, if you wanted to do like a four to eight session kind of mini campaign, this would be a great. This is a great tool to do that. If you if you really dig these these environments, some of them are are cooler than others. Uh, but all of them I I like the way that they handled uh, all of these things. So they describe again sort of like what makes a you know. And this is where I got confused. Right? Nature of Ravenloft. I'm like when you say Ravenloft, you mean the domains of dread, right? And no one might assume that material planes. This so right. They're, they're this is where Ravenloft and the domains of dread are the same thing. So the bulk of the book, more than 100 pages, 110 pages of the book are spent on this. And uh, it has like a whole thing about what happens if you wander in the mists, which is kind of interesting. Some places it seems like you have to wander in the mists. So I don't know how like mist talismans, I guess, are a way to get sort of across, which is kind of cool. You know, more information, you know, m- magic and metaphysics. Lots of information here. What it's like to live in the domain of dread. So this is sort of your introduction. What's the gods like time and travel? This is all great. But like, I, you know, I don't know. It wasn't that this chapter, again, wasn't what did it for me like so then you get into the domains themselves and i'm not going to go into each one right go buy the book and read them they're really cool uh an interesting one is it starts off with barovia and i'm like i've got a whole book about barovia i have curse of Strahd. it's packed with stuff about barovia why do i need this right and the answer is a good piece of this is about barovia which you already kind of have in curse of strad if you already have curse of strad and it talks about the villages and everything like that you're like okay that's great but then all of a sudden it gets to this section near the end about the adventures of Barovia. And you're like, wait a minute, these aren't like Curse And I realized that a lot of the things that they have sort of in the second half of this chapter are ways to take Curse and change it considerably. And if you're like me and you love that adventure and you want to run it, or if you're like running it as like a one shot, which I, I do every year, these are a lot of ideas About like, who is Tatiana, right? How do you avoid Strahd, right? How how do you, you know, hunting Strahd. Beyond Barovia. There's a lot of good information in here. Good ideas about how to change Curse of Strahd around. You know, what what are the big variables that you can switch? And an example was when I last ran uh, Castle Ravenloft for Halloween, I switched the roles of Irina and Strad, kind of. I, I switched a few roles. I I put Strad in instead of Madame Eva, and he was a disintegrating vampire whose last act was to pull the fortune cards for the adventurers, and then he turned to dust and disintegrated, and all that's left is ha- half a skull with the fang teeth. And it turned out Irina had been a vampire for like a thousand years, and the characters had to go deal with Irina, right? And that you know was one big change to the to the adventure. There's a lot of variables, like you know you can almost take each of those and say. Who's Strahd? Who's Irina? You know, who's Sergey, his brother? Who's the, who's the, you know, who's Madame Eva? And you can sort of like rotate and change these roles around. Like what if the burgomaster is the vampire, right? And Irina is her uh Irina is his daughter his dampier daughter who's like my father has to be stopped right there's all these like different ways to sort of take the same theme of castle ravenloft change these big pieces and you have a whole different adventure that still feels like ravenloft and i think this chapter does a good job of showing that so there are a lot of cool ones let's go back to the table of contents because i'm not going to skim through each one barovia which is your typical strahd one Blutspur, which is a mind flayer mental kind of crazy outer world place. Navy DM, that's your only spoiler. Borka, I think, is like a royal, uh, is a yeah, desire and deceit in sort, of a, in sort of a royal court. The Carnival, as you imagine. Darkon, which is sort of very traditional. I think is, uh, Darkon is the one where the Lich escaped. Yeah, Aslan Rex, the Lich, escaped Darkon, and Darkon is slowly being swallowed up. So all of these, I'm not going to even run through descriptions of each one of them, but all of them are really cool fun, like you just want to sit down and read four or five pages to give you an idea of an entire possible campaign world. Each one of these gives you that option. And they're they all have cool prompts for adventures. They have neat villains that you can take from. There's a lot of cool stuff that you can do here. And then there's a whole bunch of other domains of dread, each one about a paragraph long, you know, a meaty paragraph, right? About things like Sire 1313, the morning, the morning rail. And these are adventure plots right they are adventure seeds or campaign seeds they're things to fire up your imagination to get you thinking about it they're not fully contained campaign campaigns and everybody who i read a lot of criticism of it that's like oh i wish it why it should fill out the cities and have maps of cities and stuff like that And you're like it's not a campaign book right a campaign book would be one of these right this is a book of prompts right it's a book of engines to help you build that stuff out so you know it's one of these let's pick one let's pick darkon this dark Darkon's cool. Uh, they're all pretty cool, right? So they have a map of the area, and you're right. These all these places are not defined. You define them. It's okay. You have permission. Go fill it out yourself, right? You're good. But it does have like major area. castle Avernus. What is Castle Avernus like? What is Ill Ill Aluuk, right? You know, Mar, uh, Marita Bay. You know, Nevikar Springs, Revalis, right? So it's got descriptions of locations that you can sort of grab and fill out yourself. And that's what we want to do as DMs. So if you think about the fact, if you think about the fact that most DMs run their own campaign worlds, this book better serves them than if it was a campaign book, right? Because they don't want a campaign. They want ideas. And for them to be able to sit back and read a book like this and enjoy it and get ideas and be like, I'm gonna that's a great idea. I'm gonna take that and put that in my world. This book lends itself, I think, better for DMs who are building their own campaign worlds or want to extend. Publish campaign settings in interesting ways, and that's how I'm going to use it. Right? That's 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 you know I think there's a lot of neat stuff in here. But you could also grab one of these, and if you when one really grabs you, you could say we're going to run a four-session short campaign starting at like fifth level, and each session you level up, so it'll be like fifth to eighth level, and you'll you'll play through this storyline. Right? I think that this really lends itself to, to to this to this place. So there's a lot of good stuff in each one of these sections. You know, again, adventure prompts. You know information about the the doom, how to change it, what the shroud, you know what the mist means in each one, because each one sort of has this mist. So lots of good information in each one of these, meaty information to really get your imagination fired up. So I, I really dug that. I didn't really spend a lot of time with Travelers in the Mist, but there's one really interesting thing in here that I want to talk about. So Travelers in the Mist kind of talks about you know what. It's like to be a character or an NPC that lives in these worlds. And are there secret societies, right? Uh, you know, nice section on the Vistani that doesn't treat them poorly like Cursistrad did, right? Uh, not not so nasty with the stereotypes. Uh, other groups of you know that that uh, that are potentially here, you know, which are great, Mist Wanderers, you know. Then it's got some NPCs, right? These are sort of NPCs that I think were kind of have a lot of descriptions of of, of text in here. And that's fine. They're cool, I guess, right? If I want to read about other NPCs, I think these are cool ways to do it. That's all great. Jandar Sunstar, you know, I didn't really read this. I'm sure I dig it just as much as the other stuff. So if you want some cool NPCs, these might be cool NPCs you can take from. And that that kind of I thought that was kind of neat. Um, but then oh, so I thought th- okay, so so that was on the travelers. Then we get to the horror adventures. Here's an interesting thing. So they call it horror adventures. And I was like, okay, more adventure generators and more things to tell me how to build adventures in this area. Most of this seemed to be spent on session zero safety tool kind of stuff, which is very useful. Uh, They touched on it in Tasha's. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything sort of has a a mini. They're sort of splitting the safety tool stuff up in different books. And I, I don't know that that serves it particularly well again this is probably something that deserves a good spot in the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide if they happen to be redoing a new one or something like that they definitely ought to be putting that stuff in there hopefully that's compatible with 5e you know a lot of this is like session zero uh lines and veils uh it actually mentions the x card right specifically talks about the x card so all good stuff. But it's like, that's not really about building adventures. That's about, you know, making sure that you your game. Look at all this stuff, right? Accessibility. Make sure that when you're running a game that your area is accessible to the people that are going to play there, right? It's not really a Ravenloft thing. It's good that they have it published somewhere. But this is like, you know, that, why isn't that in Tasha's, right? Or, I mean, the DMG, okay. DMG was written kind of before safety tools and and, and better accessibility was really a main issue for, because I think, I don't know. I have, a th- I have a philosophy on that. I'll share my philosophy. My philosophy is, did they think that 5e was the final death row of D&D and that like, we're losing our hobby? It's going down year to year because the f- third edition and fourth edition was going down year to year. And we really think that what we're doing is a best of. And the best of is for our fans who have loved D&D over the years. They're a bunch of old white guys and we're going to write for them. So they did. And then it turned out it was really popular. And they're like, oh, my God we need to teach people how to play d and again. And the books don't do that, right? So then they're taking all these things and they're learning about like, oh man, so many more people are interested in d and and it's able to help people in so many different ways. But we've never really thought about accessibility in our d and games. And then they're like three books out. They're like, we better put something in there. So they stick in the Ravenloft book. Great, like it's, I'm glad it's somewhere. And I'm sure they're already thinking about like, how do we make this part of core? Uh, Zarin says the Jandar Sunspire section was super inspiring as a DM running another published adventure. Yeah, I wonder which one that would be. <clears throat> Lots of stuff about, like, you know, distractions, right? There's a whole section. Di- make sure when you're running your horror adventure, they're not sitting playing a, a clicker game on their phone. You don't say. So then it talks, then there's a little bit about horror and, and you know, techniques for di- you know, doing horror and all that stuff. And that's all great. But, you know, you know, it, still ask permission, right? Content tools. We're, again, we're, we're more in the safety tool stuff, which is great. I'm not knocking safety tools. I think it's interesting that they call that the horror adventure side when really that's for all That's for running a game, right? This is game advice, not adventure advice. And then checking in, right? The whole thing about, you know, this is the the final step of check in. How are things going? You guys okay? Everything, we're cool with the theme of the game? Then as this Taraka deck and spirit board stuff. I think that's fine. It's got curses, stuff about curses, which are kind of neat. I didn't really dig too deep into this. If I feel like I need a curse, I think I can go here. It's sort of like refining a thing that you might've been able to do kind of on your own anyway, but it's cool. Great art. Look at that art, right? Harak here is one of, this is, this is a setting that really grabbed me. The idea of this, uh, an entire domain that's just like ancient tombs and old ziggurats and, you know, mummies and wraiths and stuff. I thought that was a really cool setting and I want to run stuff there. So talk about, yeah, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back for a second. So they have a section on, on how to do fear and stress, right? How to add like new fear and stress. Uh, an interesting thing here is I think something that fifth edition really needs is a replacement to madness. You know, madness is kind of a problematic idea as it relates to real world emotional distress that lots of people can feel and, and and um, you know, uh, mental issues that lots and lots of people have. And the madness, that's idea of madness is sort of, you know, edging on that. And I think it's a, it, you know, there are different ways to handle it. So I would like to see a, an alternative to madness. And this would have been a great place to put it. And they didn't put it in here, really. They have stress and they have fear and that's great. But I, re- I need a replacement for the madness table is what I need. That's not as problematic. Haunted traps. Those are, yeah, cool, right? I don't really, I didn't understand this haunt bonus thing. I think it's because I kind of skipped over it. I mean, I guess it's like how hard a haunt is. I don't know how that's different than like a DC. I don't get it. So I guess it's just a difficulty. I don't know why it doesn't have a DC. Why, why not just give it a DC? strange. It's weird. That's weird. Haunt bonus is weird. You're giving me a new mechanic. Why are you giving me a new mechanic? I guess because the trap itself makes a saving throw and that's why. I don't know. That's you know, that's weird. So a hey, you know, kind of cool things. They could have just said a DC or give it a plus bonus, right? Give it give it that saving throw bonus. I don't get it. And then we get to this survivors, and I'm like, hmm, what, uh, what's survivors about? That's kind of weird, right? And they have cutscenes, dreams, memories, you know, terrible freedoms. What what are survivors? Tools for terror. Creating a survivor. You know, you start with a stat block. Hit points, whenever it gains, survivors gain levels. Okay, is this companion characters? Like, no, these are intended to be played by the players when they're sort of doing side quests or, you know, dream sequences or things like that. Or one-shot sort of thing. I'm like, one-shot sort of things? They have adrenaline, or they have survivor talents that they gain when they level, like, right? they level up, they gain things. That's kind of like a character. And then I read them like, Apprentice has an AC of 10, these are pretty weak. Wait a minute. These are level zero characters, right? We don't have level zero characters in fifth edition, but we've got these guys, right? These are like your level zero characters. They have just a few basic things. You can play them you know, wow. And you have an apprentice, like a wizard, a sneak, like a rogue, a disciple, like a priest, and a squire, like a fighter. They're they're lower power than a first level character. And they're certainly lower power than a first level character built by a player who knows what they're doing. Because you don't want to give a constitution a nine to your apprentice. So he only has seven hit points, right? But that's interesting. And I was like, you could run a mini version of D&D with just these guys, right? Like, You could run a a zero level adventure where each of the players chooses an apprentice, a sneak, a squire, or a disciple and runs as a thing. And like, this is a really lightweight version of D&D and you have leveling you could do up to like probably third level would make sense where you get some extra hit dice this is really kind of interesting this is like your really basic version of d basic 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 version of dnd you don't even play the full character but for like teaching somebody dnd this would be pretty good the one thing the one problem it has is these hit points are too low two skeletons will will knock an apprentice flat out with two hits right two hits take on an apprentice easily and a sneak and a disciple, the squire getting hit by a skeleton twice would have one hit point left. So these guys, like the hit points are just too low, right? I wouldn't, like 3d8 maybe. So I think it's just about perfect for a lightweight version of D&D where you just hand out like half sheets of paper that have a stat block on it say, we're gonna play a little bit of D&D, except for hit points. And in hit points, I would either add 10, Add five or ten. Give them a boost on hit points, right? An extra five would be really good. Tuning an adventure for a character with seven hit points is really hard because a wolf is going to kick your ass. I guess they're intended to be like normal people in horror movies. That is exactly what they're intended for. And I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking them. What I'm saying is I think this is really cool. However, I think you could expand this out to have really simple first level characters that you just drop in front of a player. Just give them a few extra hit points. I would, would, you know, aid. The world casts aid on you and you all get five extra. So now the apprentice has 12 instead of seven. Sneak has, you know, 14. Disciple has 14 and the squire has 16. Now you've got characters that can actually survive an adventure, right? But I was really fascinated by this. I was like, this is really interesting. And and again, there's like, there's stuff in this book that feels like stuff that could have been in a more general D&D book, right? Like a Dungeon Master's Guide 2, right? Has that, I mean, is this, this feels like it's got DMG 2 sort of stuff in it, right? It's got a lot of advice in it. It's got a lot of how to run your session zeros, how to run safety tools, you know, squire characters like running zero level adventures, Right? There's a lot of stuff in here. How to be a good player. right? How to be a better player at the table. All these sort of things that are in this book that are stuck behind a book about horror. I'm not knocking. It's great stuff. I, I love it. right? It's interesting that it's here. Uh, then they have a full adventure. The House of Lament. By the way, I'm pretty sure if you run those zero level characters in the House of Lament, you're going to get your ass kicked. Pretty sure about that. I ran, I played this adventure. Uh, they they had an organized play session where they ran this adventure, and I got to play in it with my wife. It was really cool and really fun. Very cool haunted house, weird shit in the basement kind of you know adventure. Uh, I dug it. You know, four to six first level characters, and they'll be third. I would say this is a you know the one thing I'll give on this adventure. Give it a few sessions, right? Do not expect that you're going to finish this session off, this adventure off in one session. I, it feels like an eight to twelve hour adventure to me. Uh, I don't know if it says when you should advance. I'm wondering. It has sections when it tells you to level. So if it's a three level adventure, you should probably expect it to take at least three sessions. And I and I would give it because I think it's a, it's a fun adventure, and I wish I had. Been able to play it longer because I think we had to like run through it, and our DM did an outstanding job and had a really cool ending where it turned out my character had been dead most of the time. I got killed when I went into a closet, and then I and then I was the rest of the time I was walking around dead, and I didn't find out till I found out I was stuck in the domain. So it's a really neat adventure. Uh, I'm I love I love that they throw an adventure in a book. It feels like a useful thing to me. Monsters. So it's got a 32 monsters in here, which is not a small assort of monsters. They are, they are really good ones, right? I love the monsters in this. Uh, they have some talk about monstrous traits, monstrous tactics. Again, I don't know why, but I found this section when I read it to be less practical than I would have hoped. When I see things like monster traits, I expect to see traits. Like here are things you can add to a monster that makes it more monstrous, right? You know, but instead it's like emphasizing wrongness, things to describe, which I guess is good, but it's less directly applicable for me. Monster tactics, right? I don't know, I just didn't, it, this, ain't, this ain't your, what the monster knows by Keith Amon, right? Like this is not kind of the same benefits, monster traits. Like adding a Suhuigan's blood frenzy trait to a different monster. Okay, that's good. Reskinning. This is useful, right? That idea of like go ahead, no, I bang the mic again. That idea of you know taking a uh, taking a a trait from one monster and giving it to another. That's cool, and that's something that you should internalize. That's really that's really really useful. Monstrous minions. I was like, oh, minions? Are we getting 4e style minions? Nope uh instead it's got these are these are the kind of traits i do find useful though right which is like a monster you know here are traits that you can add to a monster that's specific to a minion of a, of a monster right that if it dies if it's within five feet of the master it can take an attack instead of the master pretty cool telepathic minion i guess that's not nearly as useful as some of these other ones right alien mind you know sacrificial minion it, when this minion dies this master gains hit points equal to four times the minion's challenge rating the, the, so two of those are really useful for boss monsters, right? There's, there's a lot of like boss monster things you can do in here. The one I would add is sort of the, this monster and the, and the, and the, this minion and the boss, whenever the boss takes damage, half the damage the boss takes goes to the minion, right? Like that is one I use. It's really useful. It's of the same length, but it's not in here. That's kind of a bummer. Creating unique nightmares, you know. We again, yeah, good stuff. The bag man is this idea of a monster that lurks inside of a bag of holding, but it doesn't have a stat block. Mm. Then we get to the monsters, and there's a lot of really cool monsters in here. Again, I'm not going to dig into every one of them, not going to talk about all the monsters, but they are really well designed and, and and I'm very happy that they do a good deal of damage. Uh an interesting two two changes we're seeing the stat blocks is once again, the stat block no longer has alignment, which I kind of miss. I liked having the two-word descriptor that gave me a general idea of what this monster's role was in the world. Alignment did that. I get that when you apply it to an orc, you're saying something different than if you apply it to a body taker plant. But like, and, I, and a body taker plant, I probably don't need the alignment. I can kind of figure it out. I miss it. but I, I understand why it's not there. I think it was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I'll live. And then, of course, this is a thing that we've seen recently. There's sort of three major design changes that have happened to D&D monsters. Uh, over the course of the past six years that we've been playing Fifth Edition, uh, the most recent is getting rid of alignment, which I'm kind of sad about. I get I get how it's problematic when you assign it to like an entire race, like the Drow are all Chaotic Evil, every one of them. Goblins Chaotic Evil, really? Everyone? Why are we getting rid of alignment? So I think I think alignment was a handy tool, and I'm sad that it's gone. They've added the proficiency bonus, and I guess that's because if you want to sort of tune a character, it helps to have it here instead of having to go to the DMG and look it up. So if you change a character, this is kind of a handy thing to have, right? Um, you can sort of figure out like, oh, slam attack is plus four. That's because his prof bonus is plus two and its strength is plus two. That's how we got to plus four. So you know how it got to things or if you're going to add skills, you, you know, if it's con, you decide that this particular podling is smart, right? And has an arcana check, you know that, okay, it had the kind of give a plus two. So I think that the prof bonus... Is not bad. And then the third, probably bigger change, there's a the boneless art. Ew, he's all skin. I think the boneless guy has now been in a few different books outside of D as well. Uh, but let's pick. So here's a we'll look at the brain in the jar, right? The other new thing that they've been doing is uh they've been adding. Spells into the attack, so they say. What spells are 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 this? Is this monster likely to use in an attack? Let's make that part of the stat block. So chill touch, right? Plus six to hit, thirteen necrotic damage on a hit. Blah 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 blah. You see this more often now. Where let's pick one of the other. There's there's a lot of there's so many cool monsters. Is this guy. Let's, we're gonna pick like one of the more spellcastery types. The uh Lutgarow is a new powerful uh werewolf you can hear dan Dillon. there's a there's a video of dan dylan talking about the design of this guy and some of the things that he's got and it's really cool giving things more bonus actions so that they can actually do things multiple times in a round uh, the necrocore is right out of the movie prince of darkness an excellent uh carpenter john carpenter horror movie called prince of darkness and it's, this is right out of it and it's yeah it's such an outstanding movie uh new vampire right the nosferatu i'm a huge vampire fan i love vampires so i always want more vampires i like this vampire a lot i would to put some extra damage on his claw attack right it's a little for cr8 doing nine damage on a claw attack even though he does this other stuff i'd throw some necrotic i wouldn't you know beef him up add two add two d6 necrotic damage onto his claw attack like a regular vampire he's draining life while he's hitting you and yeah, you know, it's an extra seven points 16 points then he's doing two claw attacks that's 32 points now we got a cr8 that's actually really dangerous uh if you want to run an undead and you want to make it really dangerous add necrotic damage you can also add as many as you want you can start from like 1d6 all the way up to 10d6 right you know really nasty vampires might do 10d6 necrotic damage on a hit you know So beef it up. Yeah, it's uh, the Priests of Osibis, right? These are examples of like spellcasters, the kind of spellcasters, right? But they've got, this is sort of like, you know, almost like a warlock, right? Soul Blade and Necrotic Bolt uh, for its attacks. Rather than having a big pile of spells and you got to figure out what they do. This one's got, you know, Slasher Knife. This is a legendary. They have a lot of like mini legendaries, right? Legendary Resistance once a day, the Relentless Slasher, not a named guy but has legendary actions that he does. So there's more of that in here. There's also mythic creatures in here. There's one mythic creature where once it hits zero, it becomes something else. So they're playing around. Wizards of the Coast is playing around with like mini legendaries. Are th- is this guy like an elite, right? Kinda, he does a lot of damage. This guy does way more damage than that vampire does, for example, even though it's the same challenge rating. CR eight, he can take do three slice seven, 14, 21, plus the two, slasher, two uh, slasher's knives which does a bunch, look at it, two slasher knives attack. Look at this guy does 27 damage twice. I think I've got that right. Six slashing damage plus 21 necrotic, 66. Why isn't the vampire doing 21, 66 necrotic damage on a claw attack, right? And then it does lingering wounds and all this other stuff, right? So 54 points of damage. And then does an extra 21 as legendary damage, right? 74, 70, you know, 75 points. That's CR8, this guy's a hardcore CR8. Why isn't the vampire doing like that much damage? The slasher makes one slasher knife attack after the attack so it can do another one of these big ass attacks. That's a lot of damage that this guy does, which is weird, right? Like, I don't know, weird vampire. Why are vampires always so weak in 5e? God, man, add their 66. Throw that 66 on the the, the Nosferatu while you're at it. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, there's a lot, there's cool mythic creatures. Uh, I talked about the Greater Star Spawn emissary before, like this CR 21, and I compared him to like Hudogen from the from Oh my God, this guy pours out damage right. Three attacks, each attack is for 33 points, 99 points of damage as a base, and then can it the, uh, teleports and makes one attack as a legendary. So that's 198 points of damage around this guy can do at CR 21. That's a guy that does damage. Hootagen did like less than half of that. And most of it was poison. And like, you're, you know, you're not going to do much. So they are playing around with monsters. It kind of shows how CR is really vague. Swarms are cool. New zombies are cool. Uh, so here are, here's an example of another spellcaster where they sort of put, you know, major attacks inside the stat block and then say, oh yeah, and he can do these other things, right? So they take the combat stuff and move the combat stuff outside of, I guess this one they didn't really do it. This, boy, the Inquisitor of the Sword has like eight ways (laughs) of zipping around and being invisible, right? It's pretty crazy. Like, look at this. So this guy, you're never gonna get, you're never gonna get her down. Attacks twice with the Silver Longsword. After it hits or misses the attack, it can teleport 30 feet to an unoccupied square, right? So, And also, look at this guy. Another CR8. Boy, they love the CR8s in this book, I'll tell you. This CR8 is doing... So it's not carrying a shield, so I don't know why it wouldn't do two-handed, right? So if it's doing two-handed, it does 27 force damage per hit twice, which is 54 damage. And teleport. So it teleports this way right? One teleport. Blink step, bonus action, teleport 60 feet, right? So it can teleport in, hit a guy, teleport, hit a guy, teleport 60 feet away, right? And it's got, just a case, Dimension Door, <laughs> you know, as well, and greater invisibility. Can you, this Inquisitor the Sword with greater invisibility? Wow, hardcore, hardcore monster. Lots of really cool hardcore monsters in here. Here's another one, right? That's got, you know, stuff sort of force bolt, right, outside of the stat block and then mention stats inside. It's a lot of neat stuff. Unspeakable horror. I like the unspeakable horror because it's very customizable. I would love to see more monsters built for reskinning, right? Like uh Shadow of the Demon Lord does this really well. They have sort of blocks of like, here's what a demon is like, and then you can modify the demon. I love that idea and I'd love to, you know, it would be really cool. We do not speak about the unspeakable horror. This is a good one of like, here's a bunch of different things that it's got, a bunch of weird limbs that it's got. That's all great. Uh, Vampiric Mind flare, very cool. It's it's sort of a thrally sort of thing, right? It's not it's not your smart vampire. It's your crazy runaround vampire. Very cool creature. Were Raven, sure. Lots of zombies. Uh, swarm of zombie limbs, zombie clot which is sort of how you would treat a zombie swarm, but not really because it's still a big monster. I think that was kind of smart. Great monsters. So in conclusion, I I love Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. I think it's an excellent book. Uh, It has lots of lots of inspiration, lots of things I can use in my game right away. Really cool monsters that with a few slight tweaks, like more necrotic damage on your Nosferatu, uh, I could do a lot with it. It's just, it's a great book. You know, is it the best book they've put out since fifth edition came out? I can't say that. That's hard. That's hard to say. Is it a really good book? Yes. Is it worth 50 bucks? Yes. Is it worth having a D&D Beyond? Probably. Uh, who's going to get the best benefit from it? Players will, if they really love, if they, if you want to like lo- dive into the worlds yourselves and read about them, sure. Uh, you'll enjoy it. You know, there's a, the, the player stuff is pretty thin. Uh, so I, I don't know that I'd recommend it to a player. I think it's, you're probably better buying the options in D&D Beyond a la carte than you are buying the book for it. Uh, for DMs that are running your own campaign, I think there's a lot you can steal from this book and throw into your world. If you're running published adventures, I think there's a lot you can steal from this book. So I think it really fits well with both players who run their own homebrew settings and their homebrew worlds and their homebrew adventures and those who like to play in published settings with published adventures. Uh, you, you, I think both groups will get a lot from it. Most important is how it fuels your mind with ideas Uh, to really fire up your imagination. So I I really dig part of that. I hope you found this video useful. If you did, there's a few ways you can help me out. Uh, You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can join the Sly Flourish Patreon, or you can buy my book, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. All the links for that are below. Thank you very much and have a great day.